house of mercy. Now, this is a great story, wonderful story. First of all, I, I, my outline is this, a, the compassionate question, then the commanding healing, and then finally the consummate claim. So first, building up to the compassionate question, this was a very discouraging situation. I used to have the privilege of working at a county hospital uh, in Santa Clara County, which is the county up north where Silicon Valley is, you know. And uh, the county hospital there uh, is the self-proclaimed to be, it's called the provider of last resort, <laughs> which means if no one else will take you, the county hospital will take you. And that's, it's a weird place because there's cutting-edge, top-level medicine going on there, and it's actually cooperated by uh, Stanford Medical School. They have Stanford interns there, so it's a very high-level, great institution, but also it cares for the worst situations. And as I was a chaplain there for 13 years, and many times I kind of came back to this story thinking, this is sort of the modern-day Bethesda, <laughs> the House of Mercy, because some of these folks come in with, uh, you know, I, I definitely don't want to tell you about it, but you can imagine uh, scenarios of like people shutting themselves up in their house for decades and not taking care of their health, and finally their neighbors, you know, break down the door and bring them into the uh, county hospital for uh, their medical care, and they have all kinds of really, really gnarly situations. Um, and that's kind of like what's going on here. This is the provider of last resort. If you, if you are really sick, if you're com completely an invalid, a, there's the invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, uh, this is where you go. And uh, you, if you'll notice, when I read it in my Bible, the English Standard Version, verse 4 is missing. And that's not just because the translators decided they didn't like that verse. <laughs> It's, it's because, uh, you know, when we read the Bible, we're reading, uh, I, I almost always read an English translation of the Greek text behind it in the New Testament. And we have uh, thousands, the numbers are like close to five, six thousand different Greek texts that support the New Testament. It's way more firm than, say, Shakespeare. I mean, we have tons of evidence of what the Bible actually is. And so you, but, but they have slight disagreements. There's small, and hear me clearly, first of all, I don't even want to get into this because it's sort of technical, but it's important to know. It's important to know. This is absolutely true, and I stake my whole reputation of 30 years in the gospel ministry on this. There is no major doctrine, there's no doctrine of Christianity that's altered or changed based on whether you like the King James Bible or the not King James Bible. You hear what I'm saying? There's a lot of people making a really big deal of this in other places, not here, <laughs> that say, you know, you got to read the King James, it's the one that's inspired. Anybody ever heard that? A few people, yeah. It's out there. We used to, one of the guys that we were really discipling here, uh, nice guy, his name was Roger, uh, and he got sucked into this. He got in, he got a book, he started reading the book, and it was very convincing, it was very uh, polemic, very argumentative, and the book convinced him 
that I was a heretic. Because why? Because I was not reading and preaching from the King James Bible. Okay. So we have some slight textual variations. And again, no doctrine is affected by this variation. The orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, stands on whether you like the majority text or like the, the critical text. Uh, the critical text, which, you know, let's say most people trust, almost all your evangelical seminaries trust this, um, doesn't have verse 4 in it. <laughs> verse 4 is the one that says an angel comes in. Most of your Bibles have it as a footnote. My, mine does, too. English Standard Version has this footnote. That they had this uh, idea that every once in a while an angel would come to the pool, stir up the pool, and if you got in the pool first, you'd get healed. Uh, and so this man, we don't know if he was there every day for 38 years. We don't know that for sure. But we know he was sick for 38 years. And he had this hope that this might work. And the whole big crowd was there in these five different columned, supported porches. By the way, archaeology has found this place. This really did exist. They had this hope that they could get healed. Now, were they actually healed? Honestly, I have no idea. There isn't a lot of other information about this, virtually none. And I don't know, I tend to be a little skeptical, like in Lourdes, France, are people actually healed there? Uh, in Guadalupe, Mexico, are people actually healed there? I, I tend to be a little skeptical. Uh, I'm not sure, right? But, but crowds of people go there anyway. <laughs> Millions of people go to this little town in France where uh, an, an apparition appeared to a young lady in 1858. I looked it up today. But there were crowds of people there just kind of hoping. It's a very discouraging place, a very discouraging situation. And, and, and this guy, 38 years. 38 years is a very long time for anything. It's a very long time to be sick and to be this disabled. You know, apparently, from the text, I'm going to say that he, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a paraplegic because he says, while I am going, uh, another steps down before me in verse 7. So he's able to, you know, hobble. Oh, that's okay. We hobble too sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm commenting on the fact that the screens went break. Um, but uh, where am I? He, he's there. It's very discouraging to be this sick this long, to wait that long. And he had no one to help him, he says. He's, he's there all alone. People have abandoned him. His family is sick and tired of his long-term disability. There's lack of compassion. He's left alone uh, in this situation. And he is pretty near Hopeless, pretty near hopeless. But is he hopeless? You know, imagine, speculate just a little bit. What if he said this day, ah, oh, just forget it. <laughs> I'm going to give up on that. I'm, I, I'm not going to try anymore. I'm going to quit. Or let me just commit suicide. Uh, you know, he, he has some hope there, doesn't he? He's still pushing on, still thinking, well, maybe this would be today. Uh, which is rewarded for it, isn't it? It's absolutely rewarded. So now, here comes the compassionate question. Jesus singles him out. 
and asks him this beautiful, wonderful, interesting question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? You know, it's almost an obvious question or kind of an irritating question. It's like, well, what do you think? <laughs> you know, you, well, well, no, I just like hanging out with a bunch of other invalids. You know, it's such a pleasant environment. Uh, no, it, 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 it's a clarifying question. And Jesus wants him to think about it. I, I think I'm going to be kind of easy on the guy. Uh, other commentators are sort of harder on him. I, I, I think his answer it dis displays some hopefulness, you know? Do you want to get, well, we, you know, sir, I, I have, see verse 7, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. I think he's saying yes. I think he's saying yes, I want to be healed, but I've been at this a long time, I keep hoping, I keep trying. Honestly, a lot of speculation here, right? But you could think he's almost trying to recruit Jesus to help him get in the pool. You know, would, would you mind staying around for a while? It's been a whole long time since somebody actually talked to me about this. Could you possibly help me? I don't know for sure. But I think there's some hope in him and this beautiful, compassionate question. Jesus knows everything. Uh, verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he knows how long. Jesus knows. I don't think it's because he did it. research. He knows everything. He just knows the situation. So there's a compassionate question. And it also shows us that the man has no faith in Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is at all. See, if he had any inkling, you know, Jesus says to him, hey, do you want to be healed? If you knew it was Jesus and you knew he had been in the business of healing other people, what would you say? Yes, and now would be fine. You know, please, please, oh Lord. He uses the word Lord, but it's simply in a polite way. Sir, sir. He's not saying you're the Lord of the universe. You have all power. Yes, please help me. He doesn't know. And later on, of course, when the, the Jews always showing their big card of compassion, right? He did this on the Sabbath? <laughs> You've been healed after 38 years on the Sabbath? <laughs> you know, so, what, what, what's so important with you? Is it love? Is it compassion? Is it the person? Can I celebrate with you? No, I want to be legalistic and catch you on a rules violation. <laughs> that way I can eliminate you quickly. <laughs> uh, so when they catch him on the rules violation, he says to them, I don't even know. What? <laughs> He healed me, and in the commotion, I mean, I was up, I was walking, I was rolling up my bed, I was, it was a bit, I, I don't even know who that was. I want to be easy on him there, too, because I think that we get enamored, you know? Like, if you get this amazing event, and you're enamored with that event, you don't necessarily, you're not a good historian at this point, you're not taking notes. Uh, he doesn't know, he has no faith in Jesus. And also, we very clearly see another way to say that is the man did not earn or deserve this grace. Jesus doesn't look into his heart and discover that he was the one of the multitude that had earned his favor that day. 
No. In fact, if anything, it's, it could and probably should make us a little bit uncomfortable. Down in verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, this is a little uncomfortable for the American palate because we've been told over and over and over again that disease is completely disconnected from sin. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, it's not saying that every disease is because of a particular sin. I'm not saying that. That's not true. But see, in a theological sense, in other words, what the Bible actually teaches us, all illness and disease is because of sin. This is a radical view of humanity. You know that we're cursed. That means God in his justice said, you have sinned and you will die. Illness leads to death. All illness is related to sin in a general sense. And some illnesses are clearly related to specific sins. Uh, it's always too easy to pick on the easy ones, but I'll join the crowd anyway. But um, uh, I, I'm still a, I still volunteer as a hospital chaplain up at Community Hospital, and uh, I do it like three days a month. And I was visiting with a young man in his mid-30s there who, who's, uh, he has massive liver failure, and massive pancreatitis, and he has bleeding internally. Why? From alcohol. He's, he's been abusing alcohol. He's I'm no doubt addicted and no doubt sick with it. I have no, you know, yes, it is really sick, but it's also a sin. It's actually identified. I know this is very politically incorrect, and you're going to run from the building and say, we don't want to hear politically incorrect things. <laughs> I just say, hear me out, okay? Hear me out. Uh, the Bible clearly identifies that this is a sin. And do, does he need major intervention? Yes. Does he need rehab program? Yes. I'm not denying any of that. But it is a sin, and he's sick because of his sin. There it is. It's a connection. Now, I don't know why this invalid was sick. I have no idea, right? We have no idea. But Jesus says to him, you're well, now sin no more. He, he didn't earn his salvation. Uh, the only way he earned it was... Sorry. My, uh, I can... Ah, sorry. I hit something and something happened here. <laughs> um... The only way he earned his salvation was he qualified at the very basic level. You know what the qualification for salvation is? Being a sinner. Uh, if you're a sinner, then you qualify. You've earned it. <laughs> yeah, because salvation is literally uh, all about Jesus saving us from overwhelming problems. We're overwhelmed. We're like an invalid. We're we've, 38 years. We've been sick. We need deliverance. We need deliverance now. Now, look at the, uh, let's see. Let's go to the next slide, please. Mike, well, you know, I could probably, I'm sorry for this. My uh, 
I'm just going to, please give me the next slide, yeah. In four minutes, something's going to happen. <laughs> That's not a countdown for my sermon, okay? <laughs> um, the word is spoken. You know, let's not be distracted. This is, this is powerful. This is real. The word is spoken. Next slide, please. Notice there's three staccato commands. Dick, dick, dick. Beautiful. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Those are all imperatives in the language. They're, they're commands. Somehow, again, politically incorrect, but uh, we forgot that the Bible's filled with commands. The Bible isn't a book of suggestions. <laughs> the Bible says things like, repent, if you, if you kind of feel like it. <laughs> no, it says, repent, believe. This is the only way to life. And here's commands. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, here's the weird thing, right? How can you do this? You can't obey this command unless God works a mighty miracle and brings life into him. He can't do it. So the, the life-giving word produces the healing. And it's, you can almost feel the electricity. Here's the, the everlasting word of God, Jesus Christ, speaking life into this individual who didn't deserve it. He doesn't even understand what's going on. But miraculously, and I could say somewhat arbitrarily, Jesus says, get up. And the word itself makes him alive. Now, there's a really, really important sub-point here. Notice that Jesus didn't say abracadabra. Whiz, bang, ding, boom. Did he? None of that. What he said is, I, I'm going to command you to do something. I'm going to command you to do something. You can't obey the commands but I will work through the life-giving word so that you can do what I'm commanding you to do. See, the man had to get up. He had to roll his... Let's just... Should we just turn it off? Or? Okay, I think we're okay. Whatever. Are you guys distracted with that? No. It's okay. Thank you. Uh, he had to obey... You know what the Bible says? Obey the gospel. And you know what the answer is? I can't. You're right. But I will help you obey. I will work through you to obey. I was thinking about this too, because in Mark 4, excuse me, Mark 5, 41, Mark 5 is the story of a young girl who's dead. She's dead on the bed. You know what Jesus comes to her and says, Abracadabra, Allah, Shazam, you're alive. No, he doesn't. He commands her. He says, get up. <laughs> what, what, what? And she does. She obeys. It's Talitha Kumi. You ever met somebody named Talitha? Uh, that's this word here, Mark 5, 41. Get up, little girl, I say to you, arise. And the word itself produced the ability to obey the word. And did she get up? Yes. Did she do it? Yes. Did she do it on her own? No. <laughs> she did it through God's strength. Uh, 
The word heals at will. Give me the next. Uh, the word heals at will. Uh, this is p- kind of the point of this. Uh, look down at verse 21. It says this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. See, why should you be interested in Jesus? He can decide to give you life. He's the one who, through his word, can speak eternity into you. These are the words of life. We should want him. We should desire him. We should want to obey him completely. The the word heals at will. Jesus Christ is the word. It's the theme of the book of John. Look at the very first few verses. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is Jesus. This is the nature of Jesus. He is God. The Word was with God, and He was God. He is God. And as such, He has unlimited power. And here in John 5, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. I thought it was kind of ironic that our psalm by the sons of Asaph, no, the sons of Korah, asked this question, do you work wonders for the dead? (laughs) Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? And they they really meant no. (laughs) But the New Testament says, yes, yes. In fact, if he doesn't raise the dead, none of us will praise him. Because we're all spiritually dead. We're all hopeless. We're all laying for 38 years with no one to help us until Jesus comes as the ultimate source of help. It's glorious. The word heals at will. Let's look now at the the theological point of this passage too. And that is my final... uh, Go ahead and give me another slide here. The consummate claim. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, let's stop there for a second. Right, go, go back. I, I want to make that point. That's a pr- pretty cool point. N- notice in this healing, there's no rehab needed. Uh, we actually have a professional uh, physical therapist here, Kara. You know, if, if somebody's healed from uh, a disease and they haven't walked normally in 38 years, you think in like four or five minutes you can get them in shape? <laughs> no. No, I mean, maybe never, right? After 38 years, you know, your, your muscles start to atrophy. Is that the right word? Atrophy within hours, within days, within two weeks. You will lose a great deal of muscle. This is a, an amazing miracle. He's pulsated into immediate life, kind of like uh, Adam. The breath of life. He becomes a living soul. Jesus is the one needed. No rehab needed here. Jesus is the one needed. Now, let's get to the, I said, the final here, the theological point. I'm saying this is the compassionate question. Do you want to get healed? Do you want to be healed? The commanding healing, get up, take up your bed and walk. Now, finally, the consummate claim. And here it is. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, you and I would read that and almost gloss over it, right? It's like, well, what was that? 
What was that? I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> but this is like stunning. Very profound and amazing. See, it taps into this wonderful Jewish theological argument that's been going on for centuries up to this point. Because they said, well, wait a minute. Now, all of reality is supported by Yahweh. It is his creation, and he supports it, and he's working to sustain it all the time. There is no Hebrew thought that God made the thing, wound it up, and took off, and it operates on its own. No, no as the Bible says, he is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He's absolutely sovereign and works out all things. He's working. So, does he violate the Sabbath? He never takes a day off. Because if he did, there would be nothing <laughs> for 24 hours. Because he sustains it all. And it sounds a little funny, right? I'm probably putting it in a slightly funny way. But this is a serious argument. It, it kind of questions the very nature of God. And, and again, logically, theologically, and biblically, they come out saying, well, of course, he doesn't cease sustaining the universe and the, we would say, the atoms and the molecular structure. Uh, he, he can't rest from that labor. He stopped from his initial creation on the Sabbath, but he's working. And see, verse 17 here, again, this is given to us in a very specific language. The verb tenses, everything is inspired by God. And it's a present tense verb. My father is working. He is working right now. Up until this moment, God is actively involved with sustaining the entire universe. And then Jesus says, and I am working. These are blasphemous words. These, this is blasphemy. This is a capital punishment. In other words, he deserved the death penalty for just saying that. Because he's claiming, as the Jews say, look at verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, go ahead and give me the next slide, I, I put these out here. He's breaking the Sabbath, but he's calling God his own father. There's a special, unique relationship. He says, my father, but ultimately he's making himself equal with God. Did you, did you study geometry when you were in high school? My geometry professor was Mr. Brower, and he always said, you can remember geometry because it's like the little baby acorn saying, gee, I'm a tree. I love that. It never got a laugh then either, you know, but I remember it <laughs> to this day, Mr. Brower. <laughs> I loved geometry. Uh, I loved math. And we had this little thing called an isosceles triangle, okay? I, remember that? Isosceles triangle, which was a triangle uh, that had two sides that were exactly the same length. It's an isosceles triangle. And this is the word that they are accusing Jesus of. He makes himself equal. That's the Greek word, like we have isosceles. He's, he is equal with God. And they are angry, and they want to kill him. And this is early in his ministry. This is probably within the first year of his three-year earthly ministry. This is the consummate claim. He's claiming to be God. And in verse 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Uh, Robertson says, this is a graphic 
picture of increased and untiring effort to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him because of this bold, amazing, high-level claim. He's claiming right out fully to be God. Jesus is God. God exists in three persons. This is the way it is. He's ultimately powerful. Now, next slide, please. I'm going to close with this idea. There's a continuing question here. I, I think, honestly, Jesus looks at all of us, no matter what our condition is. Maybe you're a bit, you've been a Christian for your whole life. Maybe you've, you've never come to Christ at all. You know what he's asking you today? Do you want to be well? Do you want change in your life? Do you want me to speak my powerful word into you to bring change? And, you know, the right response is, yes, Lord. I know you. I want you to work through me. Next slide, please. And this is what he says. Get up. Get up. What keeps us down? What is keeping us down in, in your life? What needs to change? What kind of discouragement? Sometimes it's just laziness. One of my personal beliefs is that the church erred, the church uh, all over, but I, I'm pretty familiar with the church in the United States of America. We made this big mistake by telling people that you just pray a prayer and it's sort of like magic words, and you're right with God forever, and go on your way. We forgot to tell them that God says, you, you obey me now. You live for me. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And we forgot to tell them when you listen to Jesus, he gives us commands. He says, get up. I want you to change. I want you to repent. You're not going to lay in that situation anymore. What keeps us from getting up. Sometimes it's discouragement. Sometimes it's a, a sense of failure. Satan loves to tell you you'll never change. And you know what he also loves to tell you? Just one more time. Just enjoy it one more time. That's a satanic lie. You, it, Jesus says, get up. Make a change. And then the next slide expands on this. Take up your bed. These are the staccato commands. He says to you and I, Evaluate your situation. What needs changing? What needs changing? And it's the same situation as with the guy. He can't obey these things. But God will work through him to do this. God will give you the strength to obey. But he's commanding you to do it. And this is not synergism. It's not like man and God working together. It's only God's power working through you. But... He's commanding you. He's not saying abracadabra. You understand my point there? He's giving you actual commands. You do this. You make a change. Evaluate your, your situation. Take up your bed. And then finally walk. Walk. Make the move. Where does God want you to go? What does he want you to change? How long is it going to be before you obey him and make the changes he is calling you to make? Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, you know, you've got a past history of obedience, that's really good. 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, this is Paul talking to the people he discipled, this is Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that sounds like, wait a minute, I got saved by faith and now I work by myself? Yeah. No, no, but God's not going to overwork you. If you will not obey him, he won't work through you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. This is verse 13. Works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The word gives life and gives us the ability, the will. You know, maybe you long for just the willingness to obey. He wants to give you that willingness. The willingness and the, the ability both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God wants us to make some changes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this amazing story. And we've just kind of scratched the surface, but thank you so much for the, your amazing power, for your compassion. Lord, I know that you've left us here and you, you, you asked the same question. Do we want to be healed? Do, do we want to grow? Do we want change? And you give us the same commands to obey you to get up, take up our bed and walk. Lord, strengthen us to walk for you. Would your power please flow through us, both to will and to do, for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.